0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns with and Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Heavenly Man. I found this great quote in an old Puritan sermon the other day. This Jesus Christ is the center of this text, and not only of this, but of the whole Scripture. The sum of divinity is the Scripture. The sum of the Scripture is the Gospel. The sum of the Gospel is Jesus Christ. In other words, there's nothing contained in the Word of God, but God the Word. In this message, Eric shows how Jesus is found in every corner of the precious Word of God. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. The Heavenly Man. Now, if there's a scripture that I was going to immediately follow this up with, which will explain where this term comes from. But I'll do that after this letter. I, I received an email this morning from one of my uh, pastor friends. I've known him for years, and uh, his name is Ryan. And uh, this, is, this is a great way to start our day. So this is what he said. See, I, I wrote a song years ago. Let me give you a little background. Don't, don't peek yet. Uh, I wrote a song quite a few years ago. I was studying the Waldensians. They were the uh, outcast Christians hiding in the Italian Alps, living in caves. I mean, the stories are just extraordinary. And there was this one man. See, every one of the Waldensians, their, their desire was to take the scriptures to the common man. And yet the church at that time would not allow it. And the controlling uh, elements in religion at the time would not allow the common man to know the scriptures. And so these Waldensians were burned at the stake. They were cut into pieces. I mean, everything terrible was done to them. There was one man whose wife and and kids had literally been uh, captured and absolutely mutilated. I mean, it was just horrible stories, right? And they said that when we find you, if you do not recant... Of your position in Christ, then we will not just do what we did to your wife and children, but we will do it a thousand times worse to you. Okay, now what would a typical man do? He would tremble, he would be in terror, he would be thinking about his own protection and comforts. But this man named Joshua Giovanello, his statement was quite extraordinary 10,000 deaths of such a kind would be too few to express my love for Jesus. Whew! So that's where this song came from. So uh, Ryan's writing me a letter this morning. He says, You may be encouraged to know I awoke this early morning with this song in my mind, one that I harmonized with a dear brother and a friend of mine 18 years ago this summer in a Presbyterian church in Caldwell, Idaho. It still rings in my ears and my heart, this Lord's day as I arise to preach the scriptures and pastor the flock under my care. Here's the song. I hear the cry of many brothers telling me to stand. For the gospel light of ages past to prove myself a man. Fire, stake, cord, what may be deemed right for me. Ten thousand deaths would be too few to express my love for thee. So this is his exhortation to me this morning. Preach the demon undoing, flesh destroying, heart transforming, soul altering, mind renewing, society transforming, eternity determining word of God brother. May hell hear the Waldensian war cry from our pulpits this morning. I call him Rye Bread. His name's Ryan, so uh, he signs it bread. (laughs) All right. Remember the name of this message, the heavenly man? As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we also shall bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. Jesus is the heavenly man. However, as you see, there's a little foreshadowing to where we're going. Those that are born again into a new life, a new manner, a new way, they're born again into Christ. They're new creatures. They now bear an image, not of the earthly, the dusty, the earthen, Adam, But they bear the image of Jesus, the heavenly man. Okay, that's just a little foreshadow of where we're going. But I can't give too much away. The principle of Christophany. Last week we gave a message called Christophany. And I'm going to give the definition of Christophany here really quickly. But this message is non-Christophany, however it is. It's an extension of last week's message. So I know we have a lot of new people here that are like, what in the world, you're building a message on something I didn't hear last week? Well, I'm going to try and build in such a way where you won't lose track of what's taking place. The principle of Christophany, it's basically Jesus in the Word of God. When you read Psalm 22 and it talks about his hands being pierced, his feet being pierced, his side being pierced, when they divide his garments and cast lots for his clothing, well, guess what? That's a Christophany. In other words, it's a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, But what I was talking about last week is that actually the entirety of the Old Testament and technically the entirety of the New Testament is all about Jesus. It's all a Christophany. And then to build on that, we were saying in the Christian life, is meant to be a living epistle. It's meant to be a living Christophany, a picture of Jesus. Okay, so that's a little taste of last week. Last week's message is extremely important. I think I said online that if we were to combine Ellerslie's Statement of belief, its mission statement, and its purpose statement, all into one sermon. It would be that one last week, Christophany. It's all about Jesus. So this is what Christophany would mean. Seeing Jesus in the Bible. Seeing him here, seeing him there, seeing him everywhere. And not just in the symbols such as the Ark of Noah, the manna, the rock in the wilderness, the tabernacle, the high priest, the temple, the king of Israel. But in the themes, the circumstances, the characters, the stories, the literary styles, he is the histories of Israel reenacted in a singular human life, the law of God incarnate, the proverbs come to life, the prophecies fulfilled. He is the Word of God made flesh. He is the scriptures in a human. That's amazing. That's Jesus. Well, get this. And that's you, the one who is grafted into Jesus. You become an annunciation. That's why it's called living epistles. We become the enunciation of what's in the Bible. So people can read our lives and learn the gospel. They can see the king of kings in and through our behavior, our attitudes, our actions. Introducing the man, David. Okay, now this is going to be an introduction into the concept of Christophany more specifically. When you're studying scripture, I'm going to show you how you approach scripture to be able to see Christ, but even more than Christ, okay? There has to be an application. It's not just seeing Christ. It's knowing how seeing Christ should affect you, because it's not just beholding the Lamb of God. It's literally having the Lamb of God transform you so that you behave as the Lamb of God, okay? So introducing the man David. David is going to be our template today. He's going to be our study, and it's a very fascinating study, because David, just in and of himself, is literally a Christophany. David sits upon a throne of Israel, and there will always be, of the line of David, of the seed of David, one who will sit upon that throne. But it's not just talking about David. It's talking about Jesus, who's the root and the offspring of David. He's the one that sponsored the whole kingdom of Israel, the whole Hebrew nation, and what did it arise to? David. And then who came out of David? Jesus. He started it and finished it. The author, the finisher, the beginning, the ending, the alpha, the omega, Jesus. But David is right smack in the middle, and he's an incredible picture of Jesus. But, get this, he's a man. He's not Jesus. He's not God. He's a man. Okay, so let's watch this. Demonstrating the three points of of a Christophany. First of all, there's the actual historic dimension. You see, the Bible is not merely an allegory where you read it and you're like, well, I'm sure it didn't really happen, but some wise person wrote it down and made up these great stories, these great sagas, these great dramas, and these men did heroic things. Oh, it's so neat to read, so inspiring, but it really didn't happen. No, it actually did happen. You know that David, a real man named David, a young boy stood against a a 12-and-a-half-foot giant, with five smooth stones from the brook of the Valley of Elah. It happened. It's real history. However, when you begin to discuss David and Goliath in the Valley of Elah, what you see is the layers upon layers of Jesus Christ. You see, 40 days passed, and Goliath boasted in the valley... And he said, send your best and your strongest to fight me. If you defeat me, our entire nation of the Philistines will surrender to you. However, if I beat your strongest man, then you will become our servants. And Israel trembled in the valley of Elah. You know that Saul stood head and shoulders above all of the rest of Israel? That's what it says. That means he was Israel's Goliath. Saul is a picture in the Bible of something known as the flesh. The flesh. And the flesh is unable to take down Goliath. So you need to realize in your own soul there is an application. And it is showing that after the 40 days is completed, it's always on the first day after the 40th. It's called the 41st. The 41st day, that's when the power of the Spirit comes. It's after 40 years are completed that Moses stands before the burning bush. It's after 40 years are completed that the Jordan River's part and Israel walks across on dry land and celebrates a Passover. It's after 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus comes forth in the power of the Spirit to start his ministry. It's not an accident. It's after 40 days of cleansing on the 41st day that a woman who's had a male child brings that male child to the temple. That means Jesus was brought on the 41st day into the temple. It's the infilling of the Spirit. It's the power of God given. It's just sort of obvious. However, we don't see it unless we think Christophany. Forty days, Goliath boasts. And then what happens on the 41st day? A young boy strides into the camp and sees this giant. But it's not just any young boy. He's a boy filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been anointed in the hills of Bethlehem with what was in that ram's horn. And something alters history that day. And I want you to know, it's very real history. However, it has a greater purpose for us than just a nice little tale that we share with our kids. Because that's what David and Goliath has become. It's a little kid's tale. No? this is about as adult as you get and it's useful for doctrine and training in righteousness it's for reproof and correction and for furnishing us as Christians for every good work so the actual historic David, the very real historic man the shepherd, psalmist, king his name means the beloved Okay, he really existed and he was a man and he was a man just like us he felt, he hurt he longed he was real However, this man is a Christophany. There's more to him, there's layers to this. What he did in his life actually is a picture of something. It's a picture of Jesus, the actual Christ fulfillment. Okay, that's the second layer of Christophany. You see, the one to Christ, it's the one to whom David's life points, it's the one of whom all David's prophecies are about. It's the great end to which David's courage, loyalty, faith, and devotion all direct. It's the eternally beloved. You see, David's the beloved, but now we're talking about Jesus, the eternally beloved, the king of all kings. Okay, all of David's life, as we will go through in this message, points to Jesus. It's a Christophany, but get this. There's three points to a Christophany, and I know you can't get any higher than Jesus, okay, but Jesus has an agenda, you see, Jesus needs to be seen, needs to be glorified. He needs to be beheld in Scripture. But there's a purpose for it in us as the saints of God. It's that the actual, Christ, the actual Christ fulfillment will be in us. You see, Jesus didn't just die on the cross to make a statement of like, look how great I am. He died on that cross to purchase something. And what he purchased was more than forgiveness. What he purchased we could call Pentecost. He purchased the bodies of men so that he could fill them with himself. Not just fill them with good feelings. Fill them with himself. Christ in us. How is God's glory going to be made manifest in this earth? It says in Colossians, Christ in us, the hope of glory. There's only one hope for glory. And that is Christ must get inside of us. So Christophany isn't just about an actual historic event, or a historic person, or a historic thing. But it points to a fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then, we as the body of Christ take and understand that within us, so that it's actually fleshed out once again on earth. So Christ in us, the great end of the cross, to reveal the Son in us, to bring glory to the King in and through our yielded lives, to be conformed to the image of His Son, and thus make our lives a Christophany. I am my beloved's, and He is mine. So the great condescension. There's a scripture in Colossians which I just mentioned, but I want to give context for it. It's really amazing. Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. I tell you what, if anyone tries to denigrate and diminish Jesus Christ, slap this in their face. Big time God here. Jesus is not just a mere man. He is God in a man's body. God Almighty, the very creator of the heavens and earth, actually walked this earth in one of our bodies. It's an amazing thought. He took on this skin and lived. And yet, all the universe is about him. And yet he limited himself and humbled himself to take on this frame. It's extraordinary. That's what we call the great condescension. You need to realize this whole concept of Christ being in you is so such a massive... Condescension on the part of our God. And I'm not trying to put you down or me down. I'm just saying it's just a fact. He is so much higher than us. You know when Jesus asks us to condescend and to serve the weak around us, we're always looking at two steps down. We're like, oh boy, I, have to, I mean, I, God, that's really hard. You're asking a lot for me to bend that low. Uh, he came like a meteor from the highest heaven down to the lowest low and was a worm and no man. That is so far beyond anything he's requiring or asking of us. The great condescension. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Listen to this. That in all things, all things, he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Okay, now that's Colossians 1, 15 through 19. Right down, in this context, Paul starts waxing eloquent about what he's entrusted with as a messenger of the gospel. This Jesus has called him. And so he begins to declare this understanding of what he refers to as a mystery. So let's read it. I, Paul, am made a minister to fulfill the word of God, even to fulfill... And I added the second to fulfill, and that's what it means. ...even to fulfill the mystery which hath been hidden from ages and from generations... There's something that has been cloaked, something that has been cloudy. All the Hebrew nation didn't see it. They couldn't see what God was up to. That's why they crucified their Messiah. They didn't understand the mystery. They couldn't see it. And as a result, Paul is saying, I've been entrusted with a mystery. It's been hidden for ages and generations, but it's now been made manifest. So the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints... To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, this is such a flabbergasting, I don't know if I just made up a word there, uh, bewildering idea. The most holy of all holy places in the universe is the temple of God in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And only one man each year was allowed to come in and he would come in with fear and trembling with blood as an offering. And if he didn't have that blood and if he had, and the, as the Jews would say, if he had even a speck of sin upon his soul, not just he would die, but the entire universe would implode. That's the way the Jews would look at holiness and the holy, holy, holy presence of God. And then Paul comes whipping along and says, no, the holy, holy, holy presence of God is now in a human body. And the Jews are like, Whoa. No way is God going to defile himself by being inside of us. He would never do that. He's holy, holy, holy. Uh-huh. It's a mystery hidden for ages and generations. How could God possibly do that? He gave a foreshadow. He was born into a stable. And that's a foreshadow. What's in a stable? Uh, 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 uh. Woo-e! It doesn't smell good in there. It's not a very pleasant place. It's not the place fit for a king. And God has taken you, me, a place that is not fit for a king. And because of his cross work, he has made a way for us to be cleansed and to be made ready. To be filled and to be a house for his glory. That's his chosen vehicle. Us. I know it's bewildering. Why would he want this? He wants it. He purchased it with his very life. Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. The great yearning of Christ to gain his rightful throne. You ever heard that said the passion of Christ? Passion of the Christ is typically, you know, those days in Gethsemane through his torture and uh, his scourging through the carrying of the cross to be nailed to the cross. That's the passion. In other words, it's the movement of his soul, the yearning of his soul to say, I must gain my end. You see, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, is after something. He is moved from his heavenly place by love. And I know it's strange to think that he would love us. But for God so loved us that he was moved from his heavenly place. And he descended like that meteor to the lowest of lows. So that he could gain something. So that he could purchase something. What is that something? You see, he's after a throne. He's after what was stripped from him back in the Garden of Eden. When man and woman, Adam and Eve, rebelled and they believed the lie of the serpents, what happened is Adam and Eve sat in the throne that was meant only for God Almighty. And as a result, man and woman were cut off from the presence of God. They can have no share in his glory. They can have no share in his life. And now they're left to their own natural devices to live this life. But all that awaits them is death and decay and destruction. It's all that awaits them. But God has moved to rescue us out of this state. And so he sends forth his son to live in this very body, but to do it right. And as the intercessor, as the rescuer, as the mediator, he literally takes the penalty upon himself. I mean, the story is extraordinary. It really is. But he's doing this for a joy that is set before him. He's enduring this great humiliation, this mockery, this condescension because he's after something. That something, as strange as this is, is you. He endured what he did for you to gain his rightful throne. John 17, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, literally one of the most trying moments in the Bible. Gethsemane is one difficult place. It says that he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Medically speaking, when a man is sweating blood, he is just about to die. Jesus is just about to die in the garden, and still, what awaits him? Betrayal? Scourging? False accusation? Denial from Peter? I mean, this guy went through it. His sheep were scattered. Everyone left him. He's almost dead already. The burden this man carried was unbelievable. But why did he do it? Listen to this. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's often called the High Priestly Prayer. It's one of the few moments we get a glimpse inside of a prayer closet. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Listen to this. I made, the reason I broke it down this way is because this is a hard thing for us to understand. I in them. It's not the typical grammar that we would use. But this is the concept. He's saying, I in them. This is what he's after. But he must go through this to gain it. He wants inside you. He must take over his domain. He must gain access to your body to establish his kingdom rule the way you were intended to be. You are not meant to rule yourself. If you rule yourself, you die, and the wages of it are death. It's called sin. That throne, if you sit in it, kills you. It looks attractive on the outset, but it kills you. Jesus must gain his position to rescue you. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them and thou hast loved me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. You see, he has an agenda. He's out to accomplish something. And it's not just to forgive you of your sins, which is what he did. There's no doubt about it. I don't want to diminish that. However, he's after something greater. He purchased your bodies so that he could rescue you. He's not just interested in polishing you up so that you're presentable in heaven someday, even though you're a wreck in the inside. On the outside, you're all pure, but on the inside, you're decadent. You're all about you and selfish. That's not what he's after. He's interested in rescuing you from yourself, cleaning you up, not just on the outside of the cup and dish, but on the inside. He wants you to resemble him. However, that's a process. It's called maturity sanctification. It doesn't happen overnight. So what he does is he clothes us with his righteousness so that he can bring us into his very presence. First, we must be in Christ. Then, Christ is able to be in us. We need his righteousness to bring us into the throne room of grace. You know what's in the throne room of grace? Everything we need for life and godliness. But you cannot get everything you need for life and godliness until you get into Christ. Kingdom. There's two words I want to introduce you to. The word is basileia. It means a ruling domain, a territory subject to the rule of a king. Now, when I remember growing up, I remember hearing the word kingdom. And to me, it was just like, I don't know if it's Cinderella's castle. I don't know whose castle it is that's uh, Sleeping Beauty's castle. You know, it's uh, Disneyland or Disney World. And my picture was a cloud with that castle on it. And that's a kingdom. And so when it says, seek first the kingdom of God, I'd always sort of imagine a cloud. and be like, okay, I'm seeking it. I didn't know what that meant. The kingdom of God, a kingdom, king dom. It's short for domain, okay? A king's domain. You are interested in the king's domain and you make that your number one priority in what you seek. You know what Jesus is interested in? His domain. You know what his domain is? It's you. You're his domain. You know this body of yours? His. It belongs to him. As the church of Jesus Christ, this is his domain. We're his body. He's the head, and we're the domain. We're the rest of the body. He rules it. Okay? So this is a very important word in Scripture. Glory. Doxa. It means something that is seen in its truest state, its fullest, most correct, accurate portrayal of itself. The full weight of something, without any diminishment or robbery of its value. The beauty, the magnificence, the grandeur, the splendor of an object, resulting in awe Praise and honor. You see, let's imagine that you can see light through this curtain. You don't need to imagine You can. You can see just a little bit of light through this curtain. Okay. And, but that's not the glory of the light. You have a diminished glory. The true glory of that light is being robbed from you Okay. because of this curtain. This is the way God is. When he first enters our life, there's a little light, but there's a blockage. And it's known as us. And God is constantly decreasing us to increase himself. With every step of obedience, you know what happens? It's like a pinprick in that curtain. Yeah, it's small. It doesn't happen overnight. But guess what? More and more light begins to shine through. And you know what happens? You no, know, It's called backlighting, even. If I was talking up here and we opened up those curtains, you know that you couldn't see me? I mean, it's not that you couldn't see a shape, but you'd see a shape. It's really interesting. And I'm not going to do it to show you how it works. But that's what would happen. It would diminish that which is in front of it. The light would be what is seen. When the true glory of God comes, everything else would darken that is in front of it. It truly is glory, seen in its truest sense. We are not seeing our God in His truest sense. There is something obscuring it in this natural world. The great desire and yearning of the church of Jesus Christ is that God's glory would be made manifest in this generation, that he would be seen without blur, that we would all get out of the way, and that he would be known, he would be recognized, he would be seen. Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. I have a message at Ellerslie called Kingdom. And in it, basically the summation is, if you want to know your purpose, if you want to know what Christianity is all about, you want to know why you're here on earth, I'll give you two words. You're here for the kingdom and the glory. I always like to say, uh, for the kingdom and the king's glory. That's what you're here for. You don't need to overcomplicate and say, I'm here for China. I'm here to reach the Ethiopians. No, you're here to build the kingdom of Jesus Christ And to see his glory made manifest in this earth. Now you may go to China to do it. But your primary agenda is the kingdom and the glory. That you would be called worthy of God. That you would walk worthy of God. Who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Okay, now I'm not going to spend any more time on that. So you don't have to trust me. You can test me on that and search the scriptures to see if it's true. That's what we're called to. The battle for the kingdom. Okay, now we're going to go back to David. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. A mighty man of power, and he had a son whose name was Saul. A choice young man and a goodly. Isn't that a hilarious term? He's a goodly young man. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Now... I need to introduce you to something, and that is throughout the Bible, there's always a firstborn and a secondborn. It's very critical in Scripture. The first is earthy. The first is of dust. The first is the flesh. The second is the one born of the Spirit. It's the one born of promise. It's the one that is heavenly. Okay, so you have the first. And the second, first flesh, second spirit. Okay, and that's what the same theme that cascades right into the New Testament. However, we oftentimes don't see it. It's very important when you understand Christophany, you begin to see these things all throughout Cain Abel. Firstborn, Cain is at enmity and against his second, the secondborn, Abel. Abel provides the better offering. The secondborn pleases God. It's a strange thing. The firstborn kills the secondborn. That's Christian history, by the way. The firstborn is literally at enmity, at odds, at war with the second. Okay? So, Cain, Abel. Do you remember who was born between Ishmael and Isaac? Ishmael was born first, right? And guess what? At enmity, still in the Middle East. Firstborn is at enmity with the second. Okay? But the second is the one born of promise. There's twins. In Rebecca's womb, twins, two. By the way, if you didn't know twins meant two, <laughs> and they're at war, wrestling with each other. Rebecca says, Why am I thus? And God says, I'll tell you, there's two manner of people within your womb. Isn't that amazing? But the firstborn will serve the younger. That's what it says. The prophecy of the two is that the firstborn, who's the hairy hunter, will serve the second born. It's not just talking about Esau and Jacob. It's talking about flesh versus spirit. The heavenly man will rule. And that born of this earth will submit to it. Okay? Well, then you have the classic picture of Saul, David. First king, second king. The first king, he has everything on the outside. The firstborn always has everything on the outside. It's really interesting. I mean esau is the hairy hunter the guy just picture the bulging muscles you know the hair it's red hair too by the way it's just like you know coming out of his shirt collar <laughs> some of the girls are like oh can i marry him uh, well listen to the description of of jacob he's a plain man dwelling in tents okay so which one do you want to marry now see since you know the history of jacob you're like i'll pick jacob yeah but what if you didn't Okay, you have the hairy hunter, and then you have the plain man dwelling in tents. That's not very attractive. I know you got a lot of hair on this one. But you got a plain man. I just picture him sitting there and knitting all day. (laughs) You see, the second born never looks the part. He looks weak in the natural realm. David was the eighth son of Jesse. Saul was the goodly man, head and shoulders above all of Israel. We want that guy to lead us. Could Saul lead us? In your life, in your soul, there is one thing that you naturally default to, and that's yourself and your flesh to accomplish things in this life. Yet there's something else God wants you to turn to, but it looks like a plain man dwelling in tents. Like, why would I do that? Submit to Jesus, yield up your life, humble yourself to his agenda. I don't want to do that. You want to live with your own strength, your own wit, your own wisdom, your own growl and willpower, and you will fail because of it. The elder will serve the younger. Every knee will bow. My encouragement to you is that you bow your knee now, not later. So we have this introduction to Saul. Now Saul is born of a man named Kish. You know what Kish means? Bait. Isn't that interesting? He's the son of bait. It's like bait hanging in front of the Israelites. Will you fall for it? And they did. We want a king. We want a king like other nations. We want to be like other people. We don't like it that God is our king. We want to have a king we can follow into battle. And God says, okay, you get what you ask for. And he gave them the ultimate king. And basically the picture of saying, you can pick the strongest and the best, but he will fail you in the time of testing. And I'll give 40 days to prove it. 40 days, and guess who would not stand against the Goliath? Saul. He's the goodly man. But he was impotent to truly save the nation of Israel. There is only one who can save. Only one. And that's the second. Adam, Jesus. Saul, David. Old covenant, new covenant. It's the second that we find the salvation. And Samuel said, what meaneth than this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. Let me give you some context. Saul has been asked to do one very specific thing. Destroy the Amalekites. Do you guys know who the Amalekites are? Take Esau. You know who Esau's grandson was? Amalek. The descendants of Esau, the firstborn, are the Amalekites. They're known as the first nation. Isn't that amazing? And guess who's hanging out in Israel? Israel the flesh, the firstborns in Israel. So Saul, God comes to Saul and says, okay, take care of the Amalekites. Remove them out of the land. What does God come to you and say in the very beginning of your Christian life? First things first, let's see that heart circumcised. You know what circumcision means? Cutting off the flesh. That's what it means. Cutting off the flesh. You can't do it with human hands though. You need God's work of the cross to remove and cancel out the power of the firstborn over your life. You need it. And so God starts by saying, "Remove the flesh." So Saul got the commission, "Remove the flesh, the old man, the power of sin. Remove it from Israel." So what does Saul do? Well, he kills the uglier dimensions of the Amalekites, but he keeps the best of their sheep, the best of the oxen, and their king alive. Very smart thing. You know Saul knows what he's doing. You see, it was a strategy. If there's any Amalekites that are out of town, they're not going to be very happy when they come back and find that their women and children have been killed, their oxen and cattle have been devastated, and their lands have been taken. So what are they going to do? They're going to seek revenge against Israel. So what does Saul do? He keeps their king alive. Holds a knife to their throat and says, you think of doing anything and I'll harm your king. It's just a good strategy. However, it was disobedience to God. This is what many of us do. We keep the best aspects of our flesh alive. And why? What does Saul say to this? When, when, when Samuel says this, he goes, "Well, Oh no, I was keeping them so I could sacrifice them unto God. That's what we say too. No, no, I'm keeping this aspect of my life because then I can sacrifice it unto God. And he'll be really pleased. You know what Samuel says? Obedience is better than sacrifice. So I'm going to say it to you. Don't keep the flesh alive under the banner of sacrificing unto God. You give up the grosser elements of your past life and your old life. But then you keep these. It's like, no, I can can use that for God. No, God can use it. Give it to him. He must have it. You see, this firstborn isn't going to accept the secondborn. Samuel makes it very clear, you've been rejected, Saul, from the throne. God has chosen a better man. Same with you. You've been rejected from your throne. And God has chosen a better man to rule you. However... If you allow the flesh to stay alive within you, you know what the flesh has in its hand? A javelin. And it came to pass in the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, which, by the way, I'm not going to talk about the evil spirit from God today. And he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as at the other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. Check your hands right now. See, the better man wants to come in and set up shop within your body. However, how are you responding to it? Do you find your grip around a javelin? And Saul casts the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. You see, God wants to come in. Have you ever noticed that even throughout this weekend, as Leslie and I are talking, there's certain things that will strike you and they'll be uncomfortable for you. You have to make a decision. Are you grabbing the javelin? Or are you ready to follow Jesus no matter where he calls you? you? See, there's two at war within you, just like in Rebecca's womb. It's the flesh and the spirit and they're wrangling. If you call out for Jesus, the elder will serve the younger. The hairy hunter will serve the plain man dwelling in tents, And you will be able to live life as you ought to live it. Now, this is uh, our, one of our Greek words for the day. alegréol. Okay, I actually changed my pronunciation guide. I always had the Greek or the Hebrew pronunciation guide. And as a result, I almost always mispronounce it. So I've created my own pronunciation guide. So for all the English Professors in here that are offended with my pronunciation guide, this is for me. Okay? See how easy that was for me to say it correctly? Yeah. See, it works. My pronunciation guide is really good. An allegory. It basically means an allegory, a figurative description of real facts. Which things are an allegory, it says in the New Testament, for these are the two covenants. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. In other words, in Galatians, they're actually using this word to say, you know what, this is an allegory. You're reading about Hagar and Mount Sinai and Ishmael and Isaac. This is an allegory. However, an allegory is a figurative description of real facts. It really happened. You see, a proverb is talking about something that may be an imaginary story. It might not have happened, but the truths are real. But an allegory is taking something very real and then recognizing that they're a figurative statement of something greater. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's enunciating Jesus, his kingdom, his rulership, that which opposes him too. flesh versus the spirit. So listen to this in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the first and the second born. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. So the natural is first, is what it's saying. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we also shall bear the image Of the heavenly man. Okay? That's just saying everything that I've just said. So, the actual historic, let's start there. So, this is a Christophany we're gonna walk through just for practice. Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, Saul and David, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, Old Covenant and New Covenant. You know what we could also add in there? You know what the king's name was uh, that uh, Saul kept alive? His name was Agag, he was king of the Amalekites. There is a people that extended out of that, the Amalekite. It was an Amalekite derivative called the Agagites. Do you guys know of an Agagite in Scripture? His name was Haman, the Agagite. And what did he seek to do to destroy the nation of Israel? That's the book of Esther. So you could have Haman, Mordecai. Okay? an amazing thing to see that those that are of the firstborn seek to destroy. If you allow the flesh to live in your life, it seeks to destroy all that is of the kingdom of heaven within you. It has a javelin in its hand and it wants to destroy the better man. It does not want to yield its throne. Saul is saying to himself, my throne. And what has God said? That is not your throne. Yield it up. To the rightful king. However, you'll notice God didn't force Saul off that throne. It's the same way it is with you. He's beckoning you to obey. Saul off the throne. No. I refuse to relent my position. How many of us live our Christian life that way? It's not Christianity, by the way. Christianity is the relinquishment of your life unto its rightful master and lord. Number two, the actual Christ fulfillment. So we talked about the first and the second born, first and second born, first and second born. Those are actual characters in history. It really happened. And the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. This is the Christ fulfillment. The heavenly man has come, and he has literally put all things under his feet. It's happened. It's a done deal. It is finished. He did it. Yay, Jesus. It's accomplished. But it's accomplished in heaven. The reality of Christ's position is real. But the saints of God are the extension of that, which is why a Christophany must move forward. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So he must fulfill this great labor of cross work in us. And that's the great end. It's not just that it's finished in heaven. It's that it becomes finished in us. And ultimately that it's finished in the natural realm. And his feet stand upon the Mount of Olives and it's divided asunder. And he takes his rightful position. Okay, it must be fulfilled in us. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Our old behavior, our first man, is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. Listen to this. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. That's, that's the fulfillment in us. The realities that the firstborn will be subservient to the secondborn. Prove it! It's been accomplished on the cross, but we as the body of Christ then must become the Christophany and the picture of this great work. The ram's horn. So back to the time of David. Saul is rejected as king, which by the way wasn't going over very well with Saul. Okay. Samuel is trembling a little over what's taking place and he's grieving over Saul and, and God's like, why do you still mourn over Saul? Get up. I have a better man for you to anoint. Okay? And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. See, he knew Saul. He knew Saul would literally kill him, even a prophet of God because he was going to anoint another king you know how, I mean, this is a renegade anointing who does this there's a, this is a small country too known as israel and you're going to go out right down the road and anoint a new king you know what's funny is god doesn't just anoint a new king in hostile territory but he anoints a little boy as the king you want to make someone vulnerable how about poor david It's like, you're going to make me king? You know that Saul holds the power over all the military force of Israel? It's under his jurisdiction, his command. He can say, hunt this one down. Which, by the way, he does. However, as you will find out, he can't find him. Where did he go? Little diddly squat country. He can, for 11 years, he could not get David. You need to realize the significance of this in your spiritual life. That which opposes your king opposes you. You're in the middle of hostile territory. Your king is the hunted and despised. And guess what? Anyone who chooses to ally with this king becomes arch enemy number one of this world system. Didn't anyone forewarn you about that when you became a Christian? When you choose Jesus, you take a side against the world. You do. But you're with Jesus. And you can say, whoa, whoa. whoa. Uh, Tell me more about this taking aside against the world. What does that mean? Well, I'll explain it to you. Living in caves, being hunted, despised, rejected. Yeah, fun stuff. (laughs) Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Huge moment in history. By the way, this is a Christophany. Where was this new birth? Where? What, What town was this in? Bethlehem. It's the place of the birth of the heavenly man. Isn't that extraordinary? Not an accident. This happened in Bethlehem. And it happened with the weakest. You know that David wasn't even invited to the party? Samuel says, gather your sons. David isn't even invited. Now, there's multiple reasons that that could be. And, I'm, you know, it's just speculation. It's not something that is clear in Scripture on this point of why he wasn't invited. But some Hebrews throughout the, history, you know, the histories have, have said that David was born illegitimately, which fits with some of the psalm references that he uses. We don't know that for sure, but there could have been embarrassment over David. Almost in isolation, like he's not uh, one of ours. But I want you to realize how significant this is in a Christophonic manner. In other words, it's a picture of Jesus, the despised, the rejected. You know what even the name Job means? It means hated and despised. Who names their kid Yob? Okay? That's the same with David, Jesus. All these things, he seems to be born illegitimately. Even Jesus was. Came out of Nazareth, surrounded himself with rabble fishermen and tax collectors. You don't do it this way. God says, I do it this way. I'm going to take the foolish things of the world and shame the wise. Okay? You may be one of the foolish things in this world. You may be an eighth son of Jesse. You may not even be invited to the party. No one on earth may even know that you exist. No one even might care that you're here this weekend. You'll notice that there aren't any CNN news crews. Fox News Network isn't here to capture and say, what's going on in their soul? You know, you could have any sporting event, and you could, you know, sporting events, you get done and you're an athlete, and they interview you afterwards. They want to know all that was going on in your mind. What were you thinking when you threw that ball? Could you imagine the news crews show up and say, what were you thinking when Eric said that? Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. How about you? No one cares about us. We're the rabble. They don't want us here on earth. They're putting up with us right now. I want you to realize God has chosen the weak things. He's interested. By the way, his news crew is here. The angels are watching. He's interested in every movement of your soul. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, the world may not care, but the heavenlies do. There's a cloud of witnesses that is on the edge of their seat wanting to know, will you yield? Will you give Christ his rightful place? Will the strong arm of God be once again revealed in this earth through the church? Will the manifold wisdom of Christ be evidenced again? Please, please, Lord Jesus, may you do it now. We're considered one of the weakest generations ever. One of the most poorly educated. One of the most poorly prepared The manner of lethargy, the matter of lethargy in our souls is massive here in America. And God says, hmm, perfect. Perfect! See, he's the God of the impossible, and we're the impossible project. I like it. I like our odds. (laughs) Something's happening in this situation. There's a ram's horn full of oil that is dumped on David's head. Whatever's in that ram's horn in the great old prophet must get on you too. See, Jesus is known as the double anointed. A king and a high priest were both anointed. It was dumped on their head and it would go down, drip down their beard, onto what? Their body. You know whose body you are? You're Jesus' body. And he's the double anointed. Everything that was dumped on him is dumped on his body. You have everything you need for what is in this story. This is a Christophany. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region about. Same Spirit upon Jesus. God. It's the living God in a man. Jesus is a picture of how a man ought to be. He lived it perfectly. He was God, but he limited himself to behave as we behave, to be dependent upon the Father. He spoke nothing but what the Father was speaking. He did nothing but what the Father was doing. Was he capable of doing it himself? Of course. But he diminished himself. He became obedient unto the Father. And he's asking you to diminish yourself and become obedient unto him. Your words are his words. Your life and your actions are his actions. You are no longer your own. You're bought with a price. For God hath not given us, and this is the Christophany of Christ in us, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The swagger of the freshly anointed. David is literally filled with the Spirit of God. He's a little boy, a shepherd. You know that he's immediately sent back out to the sheep. Talk about a disregard from his brothers and, and dad. Could you imagine? Even when the prophet said, uh, "Are there any others?" Do you imagine their face? No way. No way. Don't tell him. Don't tell him, dad. Don't tell him. Well, uh, he's a prophet. Okay, he's gonna see it anyways. <laughs> ah, there's um, there's my eighth son. Uh, <clears throat> He's out in the fields with the sheep. Uh, get him! Could you imagine them looking at each other? All the brothers going, "Way, not David! I am not going to submit to David." They obviously were thinking Samuel's a little cuckoo. They send him back out to the fields. Isn't that amazing? The king of Israel is treated as a little boy in his own home. It's amazing. The swagger of the freshly anointed. Just think about Jesus. The rightful king of Israel, and how is he treated even within his own church? We are not regarding him with the deference that he is due. So David goes out to the flocks. A lion comes in, looks over at David. He's like, not very impressive. Grabs one of David's sheep. Now, David is the king of Israel, but he hasn't been entrusted yet in the natural realm with the entire kingdom. So his kingdom is these little sheep. That's his kingdom. And so what's he going to do? He's going to rule it with the swagger of the freshly anointed. He has been given everything he needs to fulfill his task. He's the king. I don't know who this lion is, but he messed with the wrong guy. David goes running after him, grabs him by the mane, breaks his jaw, and removes the prey from his teeth. And says, thank you. That belongs to me. And I want you to realize this is a Christophany. That's Jesus you try and rob from Jesus' flock. He'll leave the 99 and he'll go to get that one from the lion's mouth. This is Jesus. But it's also a Christophany a crescendo into you. This is the heart of the shepherd. And when we see someone being torn down by that lion, what do we do? We rise up with the same fervor and love of Jesus Christ. And we go after it to rescue it. This is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So the swagger of the freshly anointed. This day will the Lord deliver the end of mine hand. This is this is David talking to Goliath. Okay, so David has literally taken down a lion and a bear. Now, I have no idea why Saul let him stand before Goliath. He shows up on that 41st day, and now he's standing. I want you to measure his soul. I want you to measure yourself against it. Look at the confidence in this young boy. What does he have that we're missing in this generation? This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. There's a little boy, but what was he proven on? He was proven on a lion and a bear. And the same God that delivered the lion and the bear into his paw. You have to realize what David was thinking when he strolled into the camp of Israel. See, we don't oftentimes think this way. But who is David? He's the king. He's not recognized as the king, but he's the king. And he shows up with his kingdom. And guess what? There is a man beast, a 12 and a half foot giant out there that's blaspheming the armies of the living God. Who is? Who is this beast that he would blaspheme the armies of the living God? Do you see the growl in his soul? Do you understand that this is a picture, a Christophany of Jesus? The kingdom and the glory, the great motivation of the saints. When we see anything, any Goliath standing, diminishing the ranks of the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, we cannot sit by idly and do nothing. This is our watch. We may not be recognized by this earth, but we are being built to rule and reign with him. All we've been entrusted with is a few sheep, but may our trust be kept well. For some of you, your entire trust right now, your sheep are you. It's your soul. And when there's a Goliath in your soul that is mocking the powers of God to save you, you must defy it. I don't care what it is, lust, pride, fear. If it's mocking you saying, oh, God could never overcome me. I've been around too long. I want you to grit your teeth with the swagger of the freshly anointed, and I want you to stand before it today in the authority of Jesus Christ. Because this is a picture of Jesus standing against your Goliath, and your Goliath has been decapitated. That means his authority has been cut off. It has no power over you. You stand in this very scene, and you take the authority of the one who comes in the power of the Spirit. And you declare to that man beast that he is done for. He is defeated at the cross. I love this line. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose. That means Goliath was sitting. okay, And came and drew nigh to meet David. That David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Now, this is a giant. okay? He's the impassable creature. No one could ever defeat this giant. Israel, the entire army of Israel has trembled before the visage of him for 40 days. Now David, it says when Goliath came out, rose to meet him, most of us might tremble. of like, oh dear God, what did I get myself into? What does David do? It says he hasted. You know what the word hasted means? Oh, this is good stuff. To move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. David sprints. Uh, David, you're headed towards a giant. He's sprinting, grabbing a rock from his holster, sticking it in his sling. In a matter of seconds, the giant is down. A matter of seconds. David sprinted. What are you doing in your soul? This is Jesus. Jesus did not cower, though his enemy was a lot bigger than this. It says of Saul, he slew his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Jesus slew his tens of billions. Jesus took them all down. With one rock. With his hands tied and his feet pierced. He took them all down. In his weakness, he took down their strength. Who do you serve? You're not the coward. You're the confident. You must know Jesus. And you must know what it truly means to be the church that is literally indwelled by this very Jesus. I will, this is David speaking. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me roundabout. Well, I don't know about you, but you take three warriors and s- set me in a corner in an alley that are surrounding me, and I have a propensity to be a little nervous. <laughs> With little daggers drawn. Three! Now, if we were to vote on how Eric would do in that situation, three Trained men, you know, of course they're going to have to be like Navy SEALs or something, right? And Eric backed into a corner. Who are you going to vote on if you were um, a gamble on and bet on if you were a gambling betting person? You're going to vote on the natural. You're going to vote on the the three with their daggers drawn. And you you said they were uh, Navy SEALs, Eric, didn't you? Yeah, I'm voting on them. And you're not that impressive, Eric. Three. You know that it says of Josh Shobium that he took on 800 single-handedly? Warriors, armed warriors. Samson, a thousand with a jawbone of a donkey. David is saying, surround me with 10,000. I will not be afraid. He stood against an entire army of Philistines at in at a little field of barley and lentils. He stood and drew his sword. Two of his mighty stood with him against an entire army. Who is this guy? He's a Christophany. Jesus standing against the hordes all by his lonesome. And he did not fear. Who is in you? That very God dwells in his saints. You will not fear, though 10,000 surround you. You have Jesus. You are not the coward they are. They tremble before the victor. You must know your victor and you must stand confident in him. I have pursued mine enemies and destroyed them, and turned not again until I had consumed them. And I have consumed them and wounded them. This is David speaking. That they could not arise. Yea, they are fallen under my feet, for thou hast girded me with strength to battle. Them that rose up against me hast thou subdued under me. Now that's good old battle talk, and it seems a little too vicious for us. We're Christians. This is a Christophany. This is Jesus. All things are under his feet. All things. And spiritually speaking... All the powers of earth and hell are under the saints of God's feet. You must know it. This is your attitude in spiritual battle. Not physical battle. We don't come up to physical people and punch them in the nose. However, spiritual powers, we do. We are not afraid of them. We do not cower before them. We must know our position. And Jesus has taken the handwriting of requirements that was against us out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Are these just nice poetic statements? No? It's Christianity 101. We have a swagger of the freshly anointed. Not a cockiness in our own self. We have a confidence in God. Oh, no, I have, I have Jesus. W- why aren't you trembling right now? Oh, I have Jesus. He's not trembling, so I'm not going to tremble. Why would I tremble? I represent him. He's not trembling, so I'm not trembling. But 10,000 are surrounding you, Eric. Oh, well, yeah. But uh, I have Jesus. Don't you know that? Don't you know who he is? He's the one who has defeated all the powers of earth and hell. He has proven victorious and rose again. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and all things are subjected to him. Yeah, that's who lives in me. We are the twice-born. We are the anointed of God. The heavenly man, for whatever reason, has found us. And he has said, you, I want that. I purchased it with my body. Would you give me your body and let me dwell in you the same way I dwelt in David? The same way I dwelt, Spirit of God dwelt in Jesus. Yes, he was God. Same way I dwelt in Paul, the apostle. Same way. That's an amazing thought. The untouchables. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, and there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. There was two of them against the entire garrison of Philistines. And the key line here is, there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. God doesn't care if it's one against 10,000. He's also not against the fact that there could be 10,000 of us gathered together arm in arm, standing to fight for the truth. He will win no matter what. What he's looking for is one. He's looking for one who will believe. He doesn't mind saving by one. But where is the one? That's the key question is the one willing to rise up in this generation and show up at the battle while all the other Israelites are trembling and say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would blaspheme the armies of the living God? A thousand shall fall at thy right side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. This is a Christophany. I want you to realize, this is going to seem strange, but you know that Jesus was preserved? He was. You know that no one could touch him? They couldn't even lay hands on him? Because his time had not yet come. Do you realize that that's a Christophany? Most of us as Christians have never even considered it. But I want you to realize David was an untouchable, and I'm going to show you that in just a second here. The man literally could not be found by Saul, though all of Israel was out to find him. You know the bounty that was on his head? Saul had all the riches of Israel to give to whoever would betray him. They couldn't get him. How hard is it? He's here somewhere. I know it. Find him. He took his best men out. Literally 21 assassination attempts upon this man, David. And he could not get him. How frustrating. He's hidden in the cleft of the rock. He cannot be harmed. He has a purpose. He is anointed as the king of Israel. And God's calling upon his life will be fulfilled. You know that Jesus had a calling upon his life. I know that might sound like a strange way of putting it. But there was the fullness of time. He was being built up and trained, directed into this exact quarter on this very day in history. Passover. Passover. It all culminated to match with the Hebrew calendar to be exactly the testimony of when the lamb that was slain would be slain. It's extraordinary. And God preserved him unto that day. Well, think about this. Who is in you? Who are you in? He'll preserve you to that day. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. That's Jesus. They could not lay hands on him. However, if you know the story, I want you to know something, though. Jesus was not taken. He was given. Big difference between the two. When his hour was come, and the same with you. You know what I say to my Jesus? Jesus. First of all, the enemy cannot touch me. That's a fact, okay? I belong to Jesus. I'm not the enemy's property. However, what do I say to Jesus? Take this body and spend it any way you want to rescue the weak. The way your body was spent, I'm willing to allow my body to be spent. I give my body to Jesus so that he can use it any way he wants. I expect to die a martyr. I expect to be beaten, to be cut into pieces, to be tortured. That just comes with the territory. However, not on the enemy's terms, on God's terms. If I'm going to suffer in this body, it's for the glory of my king, not for the glory of the enemy. And that's a key distinction for every Christian soul. We belong to Jesus. We belong to him and we are secure in him. In the same way David was not touched. It's the same way Jesus was not touched. It's the same way when a viper latches onto Paul's hand out of the fire, he throws it off back into the fire. And everyone looks at him like, what is that? That's a poisonous viper. And Paul totally ignores it. He had a calling to stand before Caesar in Rome, and nothing is going to stop him. You have a calling, and nothing will stop it, but you must entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That's a strange thing to say to the same people. You're saying, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And he makes it very clear they're going to be eaten to pieces. But nothing shall by any means hurt you. I don't know what you mean by hurt, but that sounds like it's going to hurt. You have Jesus. You need to know your position. You belong to him and he spends his saint's blood well. He will hold you in his grace and in the hall of his hand the entire time. Just as the father did the son and walked him through it and granted him everything he needed. From Garden of Gethsemane where he's nearly dead to make it all the way and to be a testimony of the Messiah the whole distance. It's extraordinary. You must know the grace of God for the time of testing. Joining the ranks of the hunted and despised. This is David speaking. This is a classic Christophany in the Old Testament. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. But who's it talking about? It's not just David talking. It's not just the historic man David. It's also Jesus. Psalm 22 is a picture of the cross. You need to read it afresh. It's profound. Jesus was a worm and no man. He was a reproach of, a reproach of men and despised of the people. However, how does that affect us? Who lives inside of you? Well, the God of David and technically the one who was... A worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people that hung on the cross in Psalm 22. is going to talk about that same one lives in you. Christianity at its very onset is joining the ranks of the hunted and despised. When we sign up for Christianity, when we sign up with Jesus, we say, I'm in. David's mighty men. You know that when they chose to side with David and live where David lived and eat what David was eating, you know that they sided themselves against Saul? That's what they did. You don't play halvesies, you know. It's like I'm going to spend Sunday mornings with you, David, and then I'm going to spend the rest of the week with Saul. Guess what? Saul will spit him out of his mouth because he'll call him a traitor. You spending time with David? You telling him my secrets? And then David is going to say, "I don't want your lukewarmness. You choose your master. Who's your king? Saul or me?" That's Christianity. You don't play halvesies. Half the time in the world, half the time in the cave. With David, pick your master. When you choose David, you side against Saul. And Saul, who's out to kill David, is now out to kill you. Doesn't that sound fun? I love this stuff. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. This is speaking of Jesus. The great condescension. Could you imagine our God enduring this? Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. David's a Christophany. He's a picture of the Christ's life. He's the picture of one who enters into a season, though he be the rightful king, is living in a cave. You know what season we're in? We're in that exact season. You see, Saul has been rejected from the throne, just like Lucifer, Satan, no longer has power in this world. However, the masses are still submitting to him, just like in Israel, the masses were still submitting to Saul. And so David lived in hiding. It was a season of persecution, 10 to 11 years, being hunted and despised and assassination attempts against his life. Where are we? We're in the exact same situation. Who's the rightful king? Jesus. Will he gain his throne? Absolutely. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. It will happen. But this is our day to choose who we will serve. We must side against the systems of this world and join up with the man who's living in a cave. And I want you to know that's not the easiest decision. It wouldn't have been an easy decision for the mighty man of old either. However, you know why they became the mighty men? It's because of that decision. You know, there was never any description of them having big muscle. Them being some extraordinary warriors. They became extraordinary warriors because the very same spirit that was upon David became theirs when they sided with him. They became mighty men of God and did exploits. I love this stuff. I love the mighty men. That gets me so stirred up. The cave of Adullam. Now, three of the 30 chief went down to the rock, to David, into the cave of Adullam. And the the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. A contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. There's actually a psalm in Psalm 142. It's a contemplation while he was in the cave. This cave is a very significant place. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Dullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Did you see that list? Where did they meet? At the cave of Adullam. Who were they? Everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that sound like us? You know what God allows in our life? That discontentment, something's wrong, there's a need for something more. That indebtedness, that distress, He will allow the difficulties of our life to turn us away from this world to say, I need a solution. I need a captain like David. And they submitted themselves to him. At the same time, they were turning their, their backs on the systems of this world. They were turning their backs on Saul's leadership over them. He became a captain over them. Adulam, Isn't that good? I gave you that little pronunciation guide there. Adulam, It means, this is what it means. It's a hiding place. It's the justice of the people. It is the rock. Okay, remember, this is a Christophany. Where did David go? He's a real human, okay? Where did he go? Get this. He went to the rock. He went to the rock. That's where he went. That's what it actually said in one of the scriptures I just read to you. David went down to the rock. The cave of Adullam. He's a person. It's Jesus. Where did David hide? Yes, I know he hid in a cave. But where did David hide? What hid him? It wasn't the walls of a cave. No, it was the wall of God. He was hidden in God. That's why he couldn't be found. It's not just the mystery of granite. It's the mystery of Jesus. The cave of Adullam is a person. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. You see, when you die to this world, what happens? You're hid in the cave. You're hid in the cave of Adullam. The justice for the people. It's the righteousness of God. It's the justification. It's our hiding place. It's our rock. It's our strong tower. Adulam, the hiding place. So I'm going to go through each one of the definitions. The hiding place. It's the place of intimacy and trust. Listen to this. You are my hiding place. It's a person. It's a statement to God saying, God, you as a person are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance, say law. You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. A man will be as a hiding place. A man. Who is this man? It's a Christophany. It's Jesus. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Who is that man? His name is Jesus. And that same rock, that same cave, that same shield, that same man who is a hiding place is your man who will hide you. Adulam, the justice of the people, the place of satisfied justice. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord for my soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has clothed me with the cave of Adulam. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Adullam, the rock, the place of refuge and preservation. Now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock, to David, into the cave of Adulam. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He is the rock. It's a person. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel spoke to me. The rock speaks. It's because it's a person. It's Jesus. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. How did Moses survive the glory of God passing by? He was hidden in the cleft of the rock. not that amazing? How are you going to survive the presence of God? You'll be hidden in the rock. That's your only avenue to behold the glory, to enter into his presence. He will secure you. Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. What leads a man to live in a cave? Why in the world would you give up the comforts of Saul's kingdom? That nice feather-down pillow that you can squish up and lay on just perfectly every night. Why would you give that up? To live in a cave. I mean, what... What reasonable person would ever do that? Well, it's not the cave. It's the beloved one who lives in the cave. Okay, now I just called the cave a person, so you need to work with me here. But why would the mighties leave everything to live in a cave? It wasn't because, oh, this is you know a nice atmosphere. Like the smell in here. You've done some good things to this place. It was David in the cave, the beloved. They were attracted to the beloved. David, for whatever reason, had a way with his men. And his men loved him. Jesus has a way with his men. And his men love him. He is fairer than the children of men, the chiefest among 10,000, the bridegroom, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, a bundle of myrrh, a cluster of henna blooms. Yea, he is altogether lovely. He is my beloved and my friend. Have you never met Jesus? He's beautiful. He's truly beloved. He is everything my soul delights in. He's the fair one, even brighter than the sun. Fairer than the children of men. You need to meet Jesus. You'll understand why people go to the cave. You'll understand why they willingly choose to be the hunted and despised. I don't care about that. I have Jesus. Where he goes, I want to be. Even if heaven were a dark cave... If that is where our fair king lives, then let us go to the cave. I don't care what it costs us. Wherever Jesus is, that's where we want to be. And I want you to know, in this lifetime, it's a cave. It's not the comfortable aspects of this world. The world has plenty of comforts to offer. And Jesus says, but I'm over here. Are you willing to go where Jesus is going? Are you willing to sleep where Jesus is sleeping? I want you to realize there's nothing more beautiful to me I could just imagine living in the time of David. See, I'm so attracted to David and the mighty man. I mean, there's something in my soul that is stirred. And so I could picture what it would be like living in that day and hearing about this rightful king. And then staring at the powers of the Israeli government and their military force and Saul, who's sneering at David and putting a bounty upon his life and making a decision, the easy way or the narrow way. Which way will I go? I'm attracted to David. I want to be where David is, but he lives in a cave. I don't care if he lives in a cave, and I don't care if they kill me. I want to be where David is. And could you imagine showing up at the cave and all David's mighty men block the door and say, who goes there? One who wants to be near his rightful king. Who is your rightful king? King David. How do we know you're not a spy? And then could you imagine Jesus' voice, or David's voice in this case, in the back saying, let him through. I know him. He knows me. Thank you. You walk in. You <laughs> kneel before the king. And you say, please, let me serve you. Do you know that it will cost you everything? Do you know that this is where I sleep? Do you know that our meals are few and far between? I don't care. You're here. I want to be where you are. Good enough. You're one of my men. Could you imagine having the privilege of being called one of his men? You know that David had hundreds of thousands of armed soldiers? Hundreds of thousands. And yet in the Bible, 37 are named amongst his mighty. 37. I don't know about you, but if I had the privilege of being one of David's 37, I'll do anything. I don't care what it costs. Such an honor to be near and dear in the intimate quarters of my king. Remember the story of the three that ran to get the water from the well of Bethlehem? You know where they heard David say it? Do you know where they heard him say, Oh, for the cool water or a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem. You know where that was? It was in the cave of Adullam. It's only those in the cave that are going to hear it. It's the intimate chamber. That's where I want to be. The 37 are invited in to the near and dear presence of their God. I want to be there. I want to be there. You know what I've resolved in my life is even if I must lay down my life to help someone else get there, so be it. I'll accept my position amongst the 200,000. I still have him as my captain. But boy, do I long to be near. You know that out of the 37, there were six, or actually seven if you want to look at it this way, that were actually the most mighty. You have Joab, who is the commander, and then you have the top threes, You have the second three, and then you have the first three. Oh, talk about attractive to my soul. I want to be that close. I want to be that trustworthy. I want to be the man that my captain looks to and says, You, you've been here with me in the cave. Please, you do it. Absolutely. It'll cost you your life. I don't care. With Jesus in the dark cave, he gives songs in the night. I always picture... Laying, you know, here you have this rock for a pillow. It's no longer comfortable. But imagine laying in the cave where Jesus is. And he never goes to sleep. He paces over his soldiers. He prays for them. He watches over them night and day. And imagine waking in the night. You look up and there you see him looking down at you with a fondness. He says, shh, go back to sleep. I'm watching out for you. Oh, how about waking up in the morning? He's kneeling down next to you with a smile. And he goes, you ready? What One of those good classic lines, ready to go pick a fight with a giant? Yeah. I want to be there. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Wouldn't it be amazing to sleep on the floor of a cave, but to hear the song of God being sung over you throughout the night? What would Jesus' voice sound like? What would David's voice, could you imagine him playing the harp and singing?" That's Jesus. That's a Christophany. Could you imagine the song of God over you as you sleep? I don't care how comfortable Saul's palace is. This is very attractive to me. In the night, his song shall be with me. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. What's the Christophany? It's not just Jesus singing, but now we sing. We all wake up in the night and start singing with him. That's the Christophany, Christ, the singer, the psalmist within us. Singing in the night when everyone else is in pain and difficulty and despair and depression. What does the saint of God do? In the dark chamber of a cave, they awaken and they sing. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Christophany. Jesus now singing in his saints in the darkness of the cave. Yearning for the place of the king. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. And you could replace tabernacle with cave. How lovely is your cave, the place you dwell, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a slave in this house than to dwell in plenty and richness in the tents of wickedness. Give me the cave. Our place is his place. You know that Jesus comes from a very high and holy place? It's called the most holy place. You know that he condescended to make our place his place. Isn't that an amazing statement? He came to this earth. And we could say, where did he live? Now, if you want to look at the Christophany, it was a cave. He lived in difficulty. He was born in a stable. Okay? He made our place his place. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He's leaving his holy chamber. And he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitants of Mereshah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. What a statement. This is rather exciting as we're finishing up here. He didn't just make our place his place. But why did he come? Why did he come? To make his place our place. He condescended to live in and amongst the junk, the depravity, and the stink of this earth so that he could lift us out of it and make his place our place. Even when we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. His place, the high and holy chamber, he came from it to dwell in our place. And he invited us into that chamber known as himself to find that vehicle, that avenue, that way to the Father, to be in his place. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where is Jesus now? He's at the right hand of the Father. And where are you if you're in Christ? You're at the right hand of the Father. You may be in a cave down here on this earth. You may be in a prison cell here on this earth. But where is your true dwelling? You're with Jesus. And those songs can be sung over you in the night. Is there any downside to this? To live is Christ. To die is gain. I have Jesus. I am where he is. He has made his place my place. You know what happens after he makes his place our place? He brings us into his intimate chamber, and he says, now, once again, I'd like to make your place my place. And he once again sends forth his spirit, but this time into our bodies. And he dwells within us here on this earth. He makes our place his place, then he makes his place our place, and then he makes our place his place. And in the end, his place becomes our place. You can think that through later. Final verse. This is your precious Jesus, your fair, beloved bridegroom, singing to you. This could be the lyrics of his song. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. I know we don't deserve that. But he has made us beautiful in the rock. He has brought us into himself, the refuge. And he has cleaned us. He has clothed us with his very garments. And we are now presentable before a king where our king in reality finds us beautiful. I know that's strange for us guys in here. We're like, I don't know that I'm actually interested in being beautiful. But I want to be found pleasing to my king. More than anything, I desire him to smile over my life. More than anything, I want to arrive in heaven's gates and hear that statement, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we desire. Here he is. When you're in the cleft of the rock, when you're hidden in that cave with him, when you find yourself in Christ, you become pleasing, lovely to your king. He's not just putting up with you. He delights in you, his bride. Let's go to the cave. Let's go where Jesus says. The Old Testament and these great pictures are merely pictures that show us Jesus, and then it shows us Jesus in us.